The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to follow as I read from God's Word in Luke 1 again, a long chapter, an important chapter. We have heard Luke give us the annunciation to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would have a son, John, the foreteller, the prophet, and then the annunciation we looked at last time of the same angel to Mary of Nazareth, and now the follow-up as two women come together, both knowing that God is doing something remarkable involving them. I read Luke 1, beginning at verse 39. Here is the Word of God. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And this is God's holy word, perfect in all that it communicates by God the Spirit. Christmas is certainly the season when all Christians love to sing. And do we sing? We sing with a kind of joyful, abandoned, a whole sub-hymnal that we have called the Christmas carols that we really don't touch the rest of the year, do we? Wonderful songs that talk about the incarnation of Christ, and many of them rich and layered with theology as they tell us the doctrine of what God was doing and the great wonder of sending His Son. One of the amazing things to me constantly is that Christmas carols are beloved by people who may not share in any way the faith 
or the message that they contain. People who are critical, who are agnostic, who, have, who would say they have no faith in Christ, still enjoy perhaps the sentiment, some aspect of the music that brings back something from their childhood. They want to listen to Christmas carols, even if they ignore their theology. And so we end up with the almost schizophrenic situation that we have when we go out shopping. You can be in Boscov's or Bonton's or some other major store, and the sound system is saying, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And you want to say, what? Is this in a store that I'm hearing this? Silent night, holy night, all is calm. In a store where the clerks aren't allowed to say Merry Christmas? How is this? What a strange thing we have in our society today. The society loves the songs that we Christians sing, but not necessarily their message. Well, we know that a song is a way of communicating that involves emotion. I'm speaking to you in a prose fashion right now. I'm not singing a song. We've just sung some things. And, and if you try to analyze what music does that prose speaking or teaching doesn't do, it's, it's really hard to get it on paper. But most people would say a song just speaks in a different way. It touches deeper parts of us. It brings out emotions and messages that we want to communicate. And sometimes we find, and this is true in Scripture, that God will simply give a song. And someone bursts into a song as a way of communicating. I always think about the descriptions of how George Frederick Handel wrote his great work, The Messiah. It is said that most of the work was done within a two- to three-week period in which he was isolated in his room. He barely emerged from it. He many times worked into the night. He refused meals and, and just worked in a frenzy as this inspired explosion of great musical praise just seemed to gush out of him almost like a volcano. Well, most people don't realize that the earliest Christmas carols are right in their Bible. I want to point that out to you today if you haven't seen that before. If you haven't noticed it, the Scripture, when they give you an English translation, has a way of setting up the type, organizing the text in a different way when there's, a, when there's poetry or a song being communicated. If you would look at the page of Luke 1 in front of you, you'd be able to find what I'm saying you'd see that Mary's song, beginning in verse 46, is set up in stanzas or lines. And if you just flip back and put your thumb in where the Psalms are, you can probably find that quickly. You'd find that the whole book of Psalms is set up that way because they're songs. And you see the difference of the structure from how a, a narrative of something this happened and this happened and this person said this, but suddenly someone breaks out in a poetic word of praise, and it's, it's set up. Well, there's your first Christmas carol right there. We're going to talk about it this morning, the Song of Mary. There's actually two others that we won't mention today, but I'll just tell you what they are. If you look ahead in this chapter to verse 67, Zechariah, whose powers of speech were taken away from him until John would be born, as soon as he had that power of speech back again, it says his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And there it is, given as a prophecy or a song, the song of Zechariah. 
And there's a third one. It's in chapter 2, verse 28. The song of Simeon, an old man waiting to see the Savior in the temple and saw the infant Christ brought to him at the time of circumcision. And he, it says he took Christ in his arms and praised God. And, and there's a short song there in verses 29 to 32 of Luke 2. So there's really the first three Christmas carols. We don't have music for them. I'm not necessarily going to claim that they were sung in the same way that we sing a song to a musical tune. But they were utterances given by God, perhaps chanted, perhaps sung to music. We don't know this for sure. But we can call them the songs of the nativity of Jesus. God's revelation of bursting good news that these people had to tell to others. They couldn't keep it to themselves. And today we're going to look at Mary, the young mother of Jesus, voicing her praise in what really is the longest speech, you see, that she spoke anywhere in the Bible. There aren't that many words from Mary. Just a few things. She asked the angel Gabriel a few questions here in chapter 1. In John 2, she's at the wedding of Cana and gives a few instructions there. If you tried to put down all the words that Mary is said to have spoken, within the Scripture, that is, of course, not everything she's ever spoke, but what she, we have of it recorded in Scripture, it's not much. But here's the longest speech right here, an utterance of praise as the Holy Spirit of God came upon her, and she said, my soul magnifies the Lord, lifts the Lord up large. My soul gives glory to God and rejoices in my God. As she proclaimed a mighty God acting for herself and other powerless people. Now first today we want to look at the prelude section of verses 39 to 45 and see what I would call the only prophet who praised Jesus Christ before he was even born. I don't mean before Jesus was born. I mean before the prophet was born who did the speaking or did the prophesying. And that, of course, is John the Baptist in this very remarkable section. He has been conceived in his elderly mother by the power of of God. He was naturally conceived, and yet God had to certainly work to allow the womb of that postmenopausal body to conceive a child, an older woman. And here was John. We're told it it was the sixth month. Sixth month of what? Well, if you read what came right before, since John was conceived. So he's at 24 weeks. He's entering what the medical people call the third trimester. I remind you that a family of our church had a child born at just about this point. I think it was 23 weeks, not so long ago, weighing less than two pounds. And that little guy, Dexter, is alive today and home with his parents. Our wonderful medical world would say that the exact age of development that John the Baptist was at, at least in our time with our medicine and our NICUs and all these things we have, John would have been viable to survive, but probably not in that time. Well, here he was, an unborn child in his mother's womb, and he is going to prophesy. What we see is these two women coming together, Mary, very young, overcome, no doubt, 
amazed by what she's been told. She accepted it and responded to it in faith. But what did she think the next morning and the next day after that? She started to think, well, how in the world is this ever going to work out? How is this going to play in the streets of Nazareth? And she seeks the companionship of another woman. I don't know what the situation would have been with Mary's mother or what that was exactly. We don't have that information. But she sought this older relative, Elizabeth, and went to her. Whether she had already heard that Elizabeth was to have a child herself or not, we don't know that either. But she went a short journey and came to the house of Elizabeth. And God caused something remarkable to happen, even as Mary was entering that house. The text gives us to believe that she didn't come in and tell her story, and then Elizabeth gave this reaction. There's no question here that as she entered, verse 40 says, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting at the door, and God gave some wonderful signs here as Elizabeth's baby leaped, it says, in her womb. Now, we can believe that John would have moved before that, that he would have been active perhaps before that, and some critic would say, well, big deal. You know, babies move, they do that. You know, the, the new mother says to her husband, here, put your hand there, feel that. You know, and, and we all know about that, and perhaps John had moved before this. But evidently, it was such a violent move and so timed as the voice of Mary was at the door that the Spirit of God showed Elizabeth that this was something remarkable and that this young woman who was coming was to be greeted in a totally remarkable way. Remember, Elizabeth is the older woman. Mary would come and pay honor to the older woman. But who pays honor to whom here? Elizabeth hears Mary and says, Blessed are you, and the child you are going to bear. Why am I so favored Do you see what it says there next? That the mother of my Lord would come to me. Elizabeth was speaking herself by the Holy Spirit of God, recognizing something that was going on here. And what a confirmation that must have been for Mary. She came seeking some kind of consolation and another woman to listen to her who perhaps wouldn't reject her or call her a tramp or or decide you know, that she needed rejection. And what she found before she even told her story was another woman who said, God is doing something wonderful here, and we're both involved in it, and the prophet he has sent to my body recognized it as you came in the door. What a wonderful thing. You have to think of words that John the Baptist spoke later on. They're found in John chapter 3, verse 29, when John the Baptist put himself there in the role of a best man at a wedding, and he said about Jesus this, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears his voice. That joy, now this is the adult John speaking, that joy is mine and it is now complete for he must increase and I must decrease. That was 30 years later. But you want to think in a sense, here is John, the unborn prophet, saying that same thing as he leaps to recognize his greater Lord who came into that house, the only prophet who praised Jesus before his own birth.
Well, in the second place, we want to go to this song of Mary proper. And I want to just speak about it for a moment. The Latin name for this, you may know, is called the Magnificat, the song to magnify. The verb there, my soul glorifies or magnifies, whatever your translation has, lifts up the Lord. What we have here, I say, is Mary's Christmas carol to magnify the one true God. Now, there have been critics who have said, oh, my goodness, how are we supposed to believe that an unlettered peasant girl who probably never attended any formal schooling, anything she may have learned, if she could read, her family would have had to teach her that. There was no school to do that. She had heard the Scriptures but not been to school. How are we supposed to believe that a young girl spoke this beautiful song, full, and if you would study it and take it apart, you could do this. If you have a center column Bible or a Bible with references, little notations there at those verses, you'll see all kinds of Old Testament texts between verse 46 and 55. The notes will will mention all kinds of Old Testament references. You probably can cast your eye down the column and see that. All the allusions to phrases and statements of the Old Testament that are here. It's a richly layered composition from Scripture. And the critics say, my goodness, this is ridiculous. How would you expect a young girl to have said this? Surely Luke, the scholar, wrote this and just is saying, well, he put these words in Mary's mouth as if she said them. Well, I would say to you that ignores two important things. One, it ignores the biblical education that any child, male or female, like Mary, would have had in a Jewish family where the Scriptures were spoken and understood, where she went to the synagogue and heard the Word of God and heard the chants, heard the Psalms. These phrases were familiar to her. By the way, one of the One of the most uh, notable passages this song draws from is the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel 2. Remember childless Hannah who prayed for a son that she could dedicate to the Lord and God answered that prayer? It's paralleled here. She heard that in her home. You know, don't, don't, don't look upon the biblical education that a child receives in a family, memorizing Scripture, the little Sunday school verses that your children learn as they're still in the wet sponge stage, you know, when things actually stick. They don't stick anymore. My sponge is all dried up. But we, t- we have children learn these memory verses, and I've got dozens and dozens of them, all in the King James Version that I learned as a child. And God's Word is soaked in there and saturated in there, and its patterns come out later on as you pray and as you express yourself as a man or woman of faith later in life. That's a factor. But don't neglect either the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work here. We believe this is an utterance of God's Spirit, not negating Mary's personality. God didn't do that when He gave Scripture, but He he co-opted and and worked within a personality and what was there to weave together strands of things Mary knew. And she gave utterance to this perhaps. Certainly, I don't think she sat down, you know, and said, quick, give me a piece of notepaper. I'm inspired. I have to write this down. No, she just spoke this. She spoke this spontaneously as the Spirit of God gave her this rush of praise. And that's what God does. He doesn't speak gibberish through us when the Holy Spirit comes. 
He speaks rational, understandable praise. And so we believe he did through this young woman as she made God large. She put the praise of God on a billboard at the side of the road, as it were. You don't actually increase the size of God, but you speak of his vastness, his enormity, and you make it known to others so that they too would stop worshiping a puny, pygmy-sized God, custom-tailored to my being able to control him and imagine that I know what he is, but rather speaking of one that is a biblical-sized God that contains all the attributes and the greatness and the acts in history that is as large as God really is. There's a phrase in Psalm 34, 2 and 3 that says, my soul will boast in the Lord. So glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name, lift his name up high, put him on high. Notice Mary's not putting herself on high. Yes, she does say, future generations will call me blessed, but she's not saying, am I not wonderful? No, she's saying God in his amazing work, his mighty work has come to someone as humble as I am to do his mighty work through me. A Christmas carol to magnify God. Well, there are three sub-points I want to mention about this Song of Mary very quickly this morning. The first is this. I believe Mary was given to say here that only a God of holiness and mercy is qualified to be a Savior. And I'm saying that because I see each of those three words there, Savior, holiness, and mercy. You see, in verse 47, Mary rejoiced in God, her Savior. Now, that isn't the common way that Old Testament people spoke about God. It was used, but not a really common way to speak of him. We know, we're told that today, more than 90% of all American adults say, if you ask, do you believe in God? They say, sure, yes, I believe in God. We are one of the highest countries in the world for percentage of response to that. Do you believe in God? Yes, 94%, something like that. But then it breaks down if you ask some further questions. What God do you believe in? Oh, well, I think God is like this. Well, right away you've said you're not talking about the biblical God. You're talking about a God of your imagination. Do you believe in God the judge? God the ruler that cancels everybody's fun? God the inflictor of punishment? Or do you believe in the biblical God in all the aspects in which he is presented in his grace and his glory? There are not so many people, certainly not 94%, who believe in God, their Savior. You see, to be a Christian is not just to say, I believe in God, but it's to believe that God is your Savior, that you have a fearful predicament in this world, that you're born into a predicament, and that God came to save you from that predicament, and he has the qualifications to do it. And I think there are two qualifications here that make him a Savior. One is that he's a holy God, verse 49 there. That's not just a toss-off line when Mary said, holy is his name. 
That's the very essence of God's character. He is apart from, set apart from all that is sinful, all that is broken, all that is stained, everything that's got us caught in a predicament, God is free of that trap. He is set apart. The Scripture says God is light, and in him dwells no darkness at all. And so you have things like that vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 of God in the temple, and the seraphim were flying about him saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness tells us God is a God who has in himself that righteousness, that character that he is able to save because he's not caught in the trap of sin like we are. He's not liable to death like we are. And so Gabriel had already told Mary that this child that was going to be born, you see the phrase where Gabriel tells her earlier, that holy thing, that holy child to be born of you will be the Son of God? Jesus, as he came, would bear the essential characteristic of holiness. But you see, if if we only can say God is holy, that's a a wonderful thing, but it isn't enough to make him a savior. Because you could be holy and all you would be is a judge. You would say, look, I'm perfect, you're not, therefore I condemn you. That's not a savior. To be a savior, someone who is holy has to reach across the chasm that that holiness creates between himself and us with mercy. And doesn't it say here that he has remembered mercy? Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He is holy, but he is merciful And he isn't saying, I'm the judge and you're going to get what you deserve no matter what and I'm going to blot you out. That's not a savior. This holy God is a merciful God. Jesus receives what we deserve from him so that he can save. Titus 3, 5 says, God saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy through rebirth and renewal in Christ. If God was only holy, our goose would be cooked. But he's the holy God who is the merciful God. And therefore, he's a God who can save and does save. Mary sang his praise for that. Secondly, and more quickly, She said another thing, that he is the God who reverses pride and humility. He turns them inside out. What what is it in this world you want to do? You want to build up a big career. You want to build wealth. You want to be known perhaps for your wisdom or your learning. All of these things somehow involve pride, accumulating something for yourself so that you will have standing. Well, Mary says, here comes this God who's a Savior, and he performs mighty deeds, but he scatters the proud. Those who in their inmost thoughts, verse 51, think they are something, he brings them down. Those who are kings on great thrones, he knocks them down. And everything with him is just the opposite. The pompous pride of a Herod or a Caesar or a Pilate means nothing 
You know, here was Herod in that time of the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great. You would kind of suppose that he got that title because people thought he was such an amazing ruler. They said, Herod, oh, he's great. No, sir, that's not how it started at all. It came from Herod. Herod said, I'm great. And I want the world to know that I am Herod the Great One. And he stood tall in his day. He built marvelous architectural creations. You can still see the ruins of some of them at Masada and Herodium and other places in, in, the, in the promised land there. Where's Herod today? He actually died in a very miserable way. Instead of giving his salvation to the Herods and the Pilots and the Caesars, who did God give it to? Mary? Joseph, shepherds, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, every one of them, nothing in the world's eyes. And so Mary's saying, this God is a revolutionary God. He turns human pride inside out and takes the person who knows they're at the bottom of life and can't do anything to help themselves. They're miserable, they're empty, They want fulfillment. They want to achieve something. They don't know how to get it. And they say, oh, God, be merciful to me for Jesus' sake. And he is. James 4 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Third thing in Mary's song is this, verse 53. He's the only God who satisfies deepest hungers. Verse 53 says, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Remember the Beatitudes of Jesus as he began that great sermon in Matthew 5, and he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If they hunger and thirst for what God, a holy God alone can give, they'll be filled. But people who are filled and stuffed on the world's things, Nothing. They'll be empty. You know, this time of year, I watch everything that's going on. We get the same Sunday paper you do, six pounds worth of junk. Uh, I take the paper. Uh, you know, I, I, wish, I wish there were a lot more people like me. If there were, we wouldn't get six pounds of junk because I take the paper, and if it's white, I pull it out. The white pages that actually have print, the color pages that have junk on them, I drop on the floor. My wife looks at some of it. Junk. What is all that junk? It's trying to show me how to have the perfect Christmas. And I've decided here's, here's what we try to do in American society. Christmas has become sort of an illusory thing that we try to create, this perfect day. We're going to wake up on the morning of December 25th. Our family hopefully is going to be together if you have family in this world we're going to give perfect presents to each other. The house is going to be perfectly decorated, just like Martha Stewart stopped in for a few hours, you know, and did her thing. The food is going to be perfectly presented at a perfect dinner, and we're going to have a perfect Christmas. I find people asking me after Christmas is over, they say, how was your Christmas? And I never know what to say. I don't really know what they're asking. Are they saying, did you have the perfect day? 
If they're saying that, I'll say, I long ago gave up thinking that Christmas was going to be some kind of a perfect day because I knew I'd wake up on the 26th like everybody else and, and the sweater would have to go back to the store because it was the wrong size and you know the ham got burned or something. And it wasn't a perfect day. Aunt Mildred and Uncle Harry argued after dinner. What is this perfect day, this illusion that we want to create? That, it seems, is what empowers everybody out there in those malls. All that cash, all that credit ringing through. And I almost want to stand there. Someone after the first service said, I'll I'll give you a lot of money if you'll actually do it. (laughs) I, I, I almost want to stand there in the middle of the mall with one of these electric bullhorns and say, Folks, my name is the prophet Isaiah. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread? And why do you spend your labor on that which does not satisfy? Mary proclaiming the truth about Jesus, saying, God gives the bread that satisfies. And it's going to come through his son, living bread. Jesus would later say, eat of my body, drink of my blood. Of course, he was speaking symbolically and metaphorically, and yet really, take of me Take hold of me, rest in me, eat of me, and I will fill you, and you will be satisfied. That's why God gave Mary a song. All this was in the background. A song that the mighty God has come to do these kinds of things for powerless people. And Mary could sing it because still full of questions, still wondering what in the world is going to happen. How am I going to get through this, having a child without a husband? She had to have strong questions. She was still rejoicing. A song of joy was coming out of her. She was rejoicing in God, my Savior. And you know what? There's somebody here. I'm quite sure of it. Somebody who's heard the songs of Christmas over and over and over. You could probably do all the lyrics of all the verses. And somehow, it's never dawned on you that this is about something true. My prayer is one thing today, one thing, that that person would discover the rejoicing song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's the Christmas carol. I pray for you to learn. I pray for you to sing it. If you can't carry a tune in a bucket, that's all right. I pray for you to sing it from your heart. And don't look at the circumstances of a perfect Christmas day. Sing and rejoice because God has satisfied your deepest need in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, how easy it is for the most important things in all the world to go right on past us. We can say the lyrics of the songs. We know the melodies. We might even like the songs and yet not know the Savior. 
Dear Father, I pray for people present here, people known to us of whom this is true, people who haven't found that you can feed upon Christ and be satisfied and are trying to feed on something else, some kind of success or pride, something that comes out of a bottle or by a special celebration or buying the right gift. I pray, O God, that you show them the one thing that satisfies and gives a song, Jesus himself. For your glory, I pray. Amen.